Good morning, good to be with you again this last time. Last Sunday I spoke of the amazing identity of the church, God's very presence in the world, the body of Christ who fills all and is in all. And I said the church is another other kind of thing, unlike anything else in the world, maybe even in the universe. So how do we live up to such a high calling and identity? Would we get in bed with power so we could really be effective and get things done? No, we know that the church has failed desperately in that regard. What about witnessing and evangelizing and mission? Well, actually, Paul does not speak of mission in Ephesians in our traditional sense. Uh, Instead, the mission of the church, as we said last week, was to be a way to manifest the wisdom of God to the powers in the heavenly realms. That doesn't seem exactly like our typical mission. Uh, And Paul also adds things like, uh, we accomplish our mission when we relate in love and ethical behavior to one another and to the world. So speak truth with your neighbor. Don't steal. Let your talk be good for building up so it might give grace to the hearers. Uh, Imitate God, walk in the spirit, submit to one another in Christ. Um, Be ready to share the gospel of peace. Um, That comes a bit closer, but it's still no great commission text. And these are all things that are in chapters four, five, and six. No, we live up to this high calling by being united, by unity, as the text is, as uh, we, we had it read for us. Isn't that mundane? And yet I'll bet you agree with me that it's something we should probably pay attention to because it's so obviously lacking today. If we can achieve unity, surely we will draw people to Christ. But first, a story. I was in Thailand with about 50 Kamu pastors and a few MB mission workers uh, I was working for ICOM to discern Kamu uh, Mission's readiness to join ICOM in membership. We spent three or four days together with the pastors at the Change Life Center, and I led a workshop that pulled out stories of faith and calling into ministry. There's a fellow named Uncle John who was a pastor, um, and he led a nearby congregation uh, there, and he shared how he had a vision of Jesus. He had returned uh, fr- uh, home from working in, uh, serving in the war of Vietnam. And because of the war, he was a really hard man. But his sister was a Christian. And she was witnessing to him and trying to get him to follow Jesus. And he was having none of it. One day, uh, he was hanging out with his friends. And um, his sister came out with bowls of soup for lunch. And she was bugging him. She said, you know, why don't you say a prayer of thanks? And just out of sheer exasperation with his sister, he petulantly said, "Uh, if you are real, show me. Not exactly, you know, a prayer of thanksgiving, but probably a bit more like a dare to God. All of the bowls had uh, little covers on them to keep the heat in. And so uh, when he took the cover off his bowl, the steam that came out suddenly turned into a figure standing, a, t- a human figure standing uh, two feet tall in his bowl. Uh, all of his friends saw it and they freaked out. They thought he had conjured up a demon. His sister came out of the kitchen, out of the house really, uh, because she heard all the commotion. She took one look at the figure standing in the bowl of soup and she says, hey, that's Jesus. 
And as a result, uh, Uncle John became a Christian, and now he's a pastor in an MB church in Thailand. As amazing and thrilling as that story is, I was also amazed at what happened uh, when I told it to a pastor's gathering in Bavaria a few years later. I was sharing ICOM stories about Mennonite brethren uh, pastors from, uh, from this region in Bavaria just to acquaint them with ICOM. The host pastor sat at the end of the table about 15 feet away from me, I guess, kind of a long thing. And I saw that as I told Uncle John's story, he had his head down and he was shaking it. And later I learned that under his breath he had been muttering, impossible, impossible. I was further amazed when this pastor announced at the end of the meeting that his church was going to leave the Bavaria conference unless something changed and he listed two or three things. A year later, they were gone. They disconnected from the conference. And I couldn't believe that this story of unusual blessing in the life of a Mennonite brethren pastor could not even place a dent in this guy's resolve to separate from his uh, conference. I never cease to be amazed at the open system God has created. Um, in the past few weeks, I've pointed to several great truths, right? God is love. The truth that the Trinity shows us the loving character of God. That, God that, that helps us understand God's love energy, which continues to pour forth into everything. God loves everything he has created. And if at the count of three, uh, he stopped loving you and me, at the count of three, we would cease to exist. I've said the church is the body of Christ. And that means to be like Christ is for us to be in love with everyone. In other words, united. I, I am amazed at how these truths take time to settle into our system and actually play out. And I think in this, particularly this last point, we want to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul's pathway to unity is clear and simply stated. It doesn't mean that it's not hard to do. It really is. And it's very humanly counterintuitive. And we fail at it all the time, but it is clear. So let me talk about it a bit. First of all, we need to be completely humble and walk in humility. What's humility? Humility is uh, all about having an appropriate view of ourselves, and really an honest view of ourselves. Here's our strengths, here's our weaknesses, here's our gifts, here's our failings. That kind of honesty, I think, helps us to be humble. This is the ground floor of unity. It's easy to see how ego gets in the way of humility. We want to be like somebody else that we think is better than us or we think we're greater than somebody else. Our ego kicks in and then we're not very humble. We're not honest with who we are. Humility is quite personal work. It's foundational spiritual realism, I guess would be another way of putting it, about who we are in, in God. We are image bearers. We are totally loved by God. Uh, we've been given gifts to use for God's purposes. Humility is not worm theology. I don't know if you've heard that term before. 
But we're not worms. We're not, you know, lower than the dust. We are made in the image of God. And it's because it's so easy to focus on our sinfulness. Actually, I uh, recently heard a podcast that included a voice from uh, Australia, an Aboriginal Christian. And she observed that the Western Church Bible tends to begin in Genesis 3. That is the story of the fall. That's what she said. But she says the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. It starts in Genesis 1, where God formed Adam out of the earth and breathed into Adam the holy breath of God. We are, first of all, image bearers who have sinned and fall short of the glory that God has put into us. We're not worms, and neither are the people that we disagree with. I've talked about the work of contemplation, and I do believe that that is a key practice because it's all about where we train our minds and train our hearts. That's how we learn to know God, right? We, go through, we learn to know God through contemplation. And as we let God into our hearts, we discover who we are in God. So learning to love God like that also then causes us to learn to love ourselves in spiritually healthy ways. Not in narcissistic ways, but in a way that contextualizes our identity in God. So in our thought life, we cultivate in our hearts those truths that help us stay in love with ourselves because we're made in the image of God and with others because they're made in the image of God. So, number one, humility. It's foundational to accomplish Paul's other steps. Secondly, be gentle. What's gentleness? Gentleness is doing nothing to hurt or humiliate the other person, no matter how upset we might be. Obviously, the opposite of gentleness is harshness, right? We can be harsh. We can be hard um, in our tone, in our facial expressions, in how we uh, use our hands and feet, where we position our body. For example, correction is often needed in the family. So when we parents correct our children, are we rough, harsh, or are we gentle? Do we tower over our kids, you know, or do we get down to them at their level? I was looking after my granddaughter uh, a couple years ago. She was five at the time, and she's a pretty dramatic kid. Her emotions are right there on her sleeve right where you can see them. And she was having a rough time. Actually, I was not handling it very well at all. I wasn't saying anything that was making her calm. I was making her more upset, actually, every time I talked to her. And just sort of when things got a bit bad, my son came home from work. And she ran to the door wailing loudly, you know, and that was what he was greeted with. And it was so interesting. He got down on one knee. He used tones of voice that were very calming. And he said things to calm her down in very empathetic ways. And then he gathered her into her arms. And I'll tell you, it was a living workshop in gentleness that this old grandpa needed to see. We can do the same in the church. Remember, Galatians 6.1 says, when someone is caught in a, in a sin... Restore him gently. And I think the big advantage we have over biblical times is that we have some psychological tools that can actually help us. Uh, two weeks ago, I mentioned, just in kind of in passing, a couple of ideas that I got from a great resource called See No Stranger. 
How do we love the other who is not like us? And the pathway for that is we need to wonder about them. We need to open up our minds and our hearts to think. Well, how does this person, you know, function? What makes them tick? What, uh, what do they like? We need to make room for them by wondering about them. Then we grieve the gap that's between us. And then um, when our heart's right, we need to fight and close that gap, right? We need to work to close that gap. To me, this is humility and gentleness working together. Uh, today, our volatile culture draws dramatic lines of division. Um, some of us call it cancel culture, where others have to agree with us 100% or we cut them off. But what if we committed to gentleness in the home, in the church, and even in the workplace, in our world? I think the love released would change the world because it did in the early centuries of our faith. Gentleness and love did it. When Constantine became the emperor, I think over 50% of the Mediterranean world was Christian at the time. After being gentle, we've got to be patient. So what's patience? Patience is enduring conflict without lashing out in revenge. Um, and I'll say a bit more about that. When we disagree in the church, are we patient enough to work on the reasons for the conflict, right? Conflict is guaranteed. And patience will help us to take time to walk in each other's shoes for a while in order to understand what's going on. And consider the challenge of parenting. You correct your child, they obey, and everything's fine. So you're gentle, you know, the, the results occur. But you see, the kids always forget, right? They're tempted and they go back to the same thing. Or they have their own will and they decide, well, I'm going to do this again. Or they might do it just to bug you. It happens over and over again. You've got to be gentle, not just the first time, but the second time. And maybe the third time or the fifth time or the tenth time. By the time you have to be gentle the tenth time, that's really where the patience kicks in. And here, again, I would like to talk about the see no stranger. And here's the line. By the tenth time, I think you're just a little upset. A little hot under the collar. What you need to do is step away to rage and then return to listen and reimagine a solution together. This is the pathway to dealing with an opponent. I'm going to guess that by the time your kid has offended you the tenth time, they're not just an other, they're an opponent. How do you continue to be gentle after so many times? Your nervous system is charged. By now you want to fight. That urge is actually still controllable, but it takes that next level of self-control. When you are enraged, step away to that safe place and get it out, but then return to listen and see if you can find that pathway together for a solution. Jesus knew the human condition when he told Peter to forgive, 70 times 7. Actually, 490 times is virtually uncountable. You'd lose track. So Jesus must have meant just keep forgiving. Keep being patient. Keep remembering that God loves this person far more than you do. I was on church council uh, in my home church for a very difficult period of time. A group of people were very unhappy with a pastor. 
And one member berated the pastor in a public way that merited our request for an apology. I was part of a delegation to that member to get that apology. And yes, we got it. But you know, that member hasn't talked to me for 10 years. I actually don't know what to do to rectify that. And I've tried various ways, including apologizing for my own part in what may have contributed to that hurt. I thought I was patient, and maybe I wasn't. I don't know. But I'm going to tell you that not every time works out. And we've got to realize that that's the case too. But that doesn't mean that this is not the right thing to do. Why is this so important? Well, because of this next step, forbearance. What's forbearance? I heard a great definition from a guy who was speaking at Mennonite World Conference about this, and he says, forbearance is making room for those we disagree with, who we don't maybe even like, but with whom we are eternally bound in Christ, whether we like it or not. Forbearance is remembering, that's my brother in Christ. That's my sister in Christ. We are going to end up in eternity together. So I'd better figure out how to get along or even work together if we're going to be in the same body. One way I practice forbearance is to actually pray for the person I'm having trouble with. Um, there's a certain personality that I have great difficulty working with. And from time to time, that personality has, has come into my orbit through the years, through the decades of ministry. Um, they always push my buttons, and the main button they push is depression. So in other words, as I gather or work with this other person, and their personality clashes with mine, I usually get depressed. Um, I know also that I frustrate them completely. And usually my efforts to try to fix things or mend fences backfires. So um, I've also tried to be somebody I'm not, to try to be a little bit more like them. That's just not who I am. It's an opposite kind of personality. And all that does is make me further depressed. My eventual best efforts at this, uh, at forbearance, has been to pray for them. And it has helped me remember who we are together in Christ. We'll end up in eternity together. These are good people. They're Christian brothers and sisters. We're going to be with Jesus forever. So I've tried to practice some level of spiritual unity, even if we can't make it complete. I hope that's encouraging to you because, uh, hey, we can't all do it all, all 100%. So Paul leaves us with this challenge. Uh, and, and then he, he ends off with a couple of interesting things. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, the bond of peace. And there is a challenge and also some good news. First, the challenge, make the effort. The Greek word used here for making the effort implies both diligence and speed. In other words, you've got to work, at uh, work diligently at unity, but you need to do it eagerly. You've got to lean in. You've got to kind of be, you know, push it. 
We don't manufacture unity by being nice, but by living out these discipleship characteristics of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. And this is how we live into the ministry of reconciliation in our relationships with family and church. But what if we applied this to mission as well? Remember, it's human nature to identify danger. Within a tenth of a second, our brain registers and identifies a potential enemy to get us ready to fight or flee. When a white person sees someone of a different race, their brain triggers warning within an instant. I mean, this is just whites versus people of color, but it happens in all kinds of ways like that. But Christians know that God loves everything he has created. So unity work is impulse control. Actually, boy, I'll tell you, after this past week, you could only wish that that young man in London had controlled his terrible urge instead of running over those people who look different. But I'm also going to add something here. It's in our faith built in to identify opponents or other. We cultivate clear lines of who is in and who is out. And there's a certain aspect of this that's true. You know, are, are people following Jesus or are they not following Jesus? But that has a tendency to reinforce um, this othering, which is a very human nature thing. And it's easy to slip into that instead of reinforcing God's desire to love and draw all to himself. So in our own faith, we have some counterintuitive work to do to be diligent, to zero in on unity and fight for it. We have to believe unity work is important. I think it could save lives, not just souls. But then the encouragement, the good news. We don't have to create unity. Jesus has done that already. All we have to do is maintain it. Remember, the church is God's way to repair the ruptures in the world and in our lives. The church is the only organization on the planet that's not defined by race or gender or economic status or employment, even though we get it wrong sometimes. You know, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. That's Galatians 3. We are already united, united with Christ and with each other. All we have to do is maintain that through these practices. And also, I believe, it will win the world. Let me close with this. In 1985, a young Malaysian university student came to live with us. She had been kicked out of her boarding house. The landlord had accused her of stealing. The person arranging things uh, said that was probably not the case, but we needed to know. We agreed to take her in. But there was one caveat. Uh, we were told that we were not allowed to proselytize her into Christianity. So we said, fine, we didn't, we wouldn't. All we did was be a family and we lived in a Christian way, as Christian way as we could. We tried to demonstrate humility, gentleness, patience and forbearance with each other as a family and with her. And within the year, she was baptized into a Mennonite church, Mennonite church here in Fort Garry. That's how powerful this can be. Well, 
I've really enjoyed sharing my uh, growth ideas, my growth insights and spirituality for these past four weeks. I hope that you've received something that has helped you, maybe at the conceptual level or at a really personal, intimate level that has helped you in your day-to-day walk. God bless you, and uh, let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unity in the fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Fort Gary's witness to the gospel of peace. And we thank you for each member in this community, in this church. I pray that you would bless the whole congregation. I pray that you would bless pastors Carl and Ruth and Janessa and Kevin, especially Kevin as he heads off into a new assignment. And uh, Lord, we love you. I pray that you would help us to love one another the way you love us. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.